It's a great blessing to be able to sing, uh, to be able to worship, to be able to praise God through song. And as many of you may know, the Bible is a book that is full of songs. Did you know this? There are more than 185 songs recorded in the Bible. 185. Many of those, most of them even, are in the song book of the Old Testament, the Psalms. But there are many others throughout the rest of the pages of Scripture. The very last song in the Bible can be found in Revelation chapter 15. And it's sung by saints, Christians, who have defeated, conquered the beast at the point when God pours out the last of his wrath on earth. I'm going to read for you uh, that song in the book of Revelation, chapter 15. It's just a couple of verses. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. If this song sounds familiar to your ears, even if you haven't been in Revelation 15 recently, it should. Because it contains the familiar message of God's praiseworthiness and his victory march throughout history that culminates in a final, decisive defeat of his enemies on the last day. But did you notice it's called the Song of Moses? It's the Song of Moses. It's called that because it contains the same message as the first song in the Bible, which is in Exodus 15, which is also called the Song of Moses. So the first and the last songs throughout the Bible are the Song of Moses. That first one was sung by the people of God after he had finally delivered them from slavery in Egypt and the wicked, oppressive rule of Pharaoh. And this is going to be our text today. We're going to go back to the time of that event and produce that song. If you have your Bibles with you today, go to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be in a single verse again today, just in verse 29. And if you follow us through the, the course of our Hebrew study, you may recall uh, that we've done some passages in larger chunks and when we got to Hebrews 11, it's as though we hit a grinding halt, like just all the way down to a single verse per week. The rest of Hebrews won't be this slow for us. But the reason that we're doing this is because this chapter records enormous events in Israelite history, many of which have chapters and even full books of the Old Testament devoted to them. And the Hebrews audience were well accustomed to those stories. They knew about them. So, so we want to get spun up in knowledge to where they were and their understanding of those stories so that we can receive what is being told to them in that chapter. So I'm going to go ahead and read just this one verse out loud to you. I'll just put it up on the, the slide so you can see it. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to dive back into Exodus 14, which actually records this event in history. So you can follow me to Exodus 14 as we read some excerpts there. But let's read this text, pray, and then start, start in. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they tempted to do the same, were drowned. 
Let's pray. Father, in this single verse, we know we see much importance, much significance. We see the introduction into the Old Covenant, this entire Old Testament period where believers related to you in a particular way. We learn much from it, Father. There's so much from it that carries into our day now, even as we're in a new covenant. But I pray that as we look back at this story, that we'll be well served by it as it was intended to serve even the first audience. So Lord, let us put our hearts and our minds back into Exodus 14 and the events of that amazing Exodus event where you redeemed your people out of slavery in Egypt. And help us to see how we today can have great, great faith trusting in our God as we look back at what the saints believed then as well. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. This, of course, refers back to that famous Old Testament account of the Red Sea crossing. I'm going to read that for you today in Exodus 14. If you have your Bibles, go there. I'm not going to read through the whole chapter, but I'm going to read through a couple of excerpts that give us the, the summary points that will be helpful to see in this verse. This passage picks up just after the 10th plague has been poured out on Egypt. The people of God had been in slavery there. Pharaoh had oppressed them uh, in, a, in a wicked, awful way, even killed their, their baby boys in order to control the populace that was growing out of control in Egypt. God sent Moses to the people, a deliverer, and by 10 mighty works displayed his power over the Egyptians and the Egyptians' false gods, the 10th of which was the Passover event, which we covered last week. Mere hours after that Passover event, where the people of God put the blood of a sacrificed lamb on the doorposts of their home, the angel of the Lord passed by and took the life of every firstborn in Egypt that did not have the blood over the doorpost. Hours later, the people left, and this is what happens, picking up in Exodus 14, verse 10. The people had already left. They'd fled. They make their way down to the Red Sea, and it seems as though they're in a dead end, maybe even in an ambush, because Pharaoh's army is coming to get them, because they've realized the error of allowing the Israelites to flee. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. A quick pause on this point. The first response of the Israelites when they see Pharaoh's army bearing down on them was fear. It was fear. The reason I think it's important to pause and see that is because in this verse, as well as many other retellings of this particular event throughout the Bible, it is the faith of the people that's being commended. So how do we square the fact that they were afraid of the bad guys coming and yet they had great faith in crossing the Red Sea? I think the answer is that we are to see that faith is not synonymous with courage. It's too easy for us to think that sometimes, that those who are really faithful are those who don't get afraid of difficult things. But that's not the case here at all. It was in the face of a great and fearsome enemy that they must demonstrate faith in God. Continuing on. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is the same complaint that this generation will continue to state over the course of the next 40 years. This is like right out of the gate, they already say it. I, I took my kids down to St. George on a trip. What is that, about five-hour drive down there, a little less than that. Uh, we're 10 minutes away from the house a couple weeks ago on, on, in transit, and my kids in the back are already saying, are we there yet? How much longer? It's, literally, the Israelites had that same kind of complaint. Hours, hours after leaving, they're already going, hey, we should have stayed. We'll continue saying the same thing. Moses responded to him in this way, though. Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So don't fear Stand firm, shut your mouth, do what God has said. You know those Egyptians you're afraid of seeing behind you right now? Well, take a good long look because it's the last time you will ever see them. The Pharaoh's army continues to bear down. God's presence stands between the people and Pharaoh. It says this in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So this is the picture. Moses puts out his staff, the Red Sea parts. And it parts over a period of time. All throughout the night, a, an east wind blows. It drives the sea up as a wall of water on the right and a wall on the left. I wonder if you, as I have, have seen movies that depict this famous scene. Uh, maybe seen animations or, or even artwork, old and new, that kind of display Moses standing with the staff and the walls of water on the right and the left standing up. Now, if you're like I am, you might be kind of skeptical. Whenever I hear of these big, uh, vast miracles, my first thought is, did it really look like that? Well, I think, according to what the Bible says here, yes, it actually looked just like that. I think those, those artistic renderings that I'm picturing here actually are what it looked like. Giant walls of water on the right and the left. In fact, throughout history, when people record this event and the retelling of this event, even in Bible history, they use language that make it unmistakable What's going down here? I'll read for you Psalm 78. The psalmist writes it like this in verse 13. He, God, divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. So it seems like all those pictures and movies that do show it in that way actually probably are getting it closer to accurate. Continuing on in the text. As the Egyptians pursue and went in after them. And in the morning, watch the in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels. 
so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What follows next is the song of Moses in Exodus 15. So that's the event. That's the actual taking place of the Red Sea crossing. People made their way through. The Egyptians follow in behind. Pharaoh and his armies. God has the waters come back. Destroys all who followed to the man. All of Pharaoh's army that had followed ended up under the sea. And their bodies washed up on the shore. And the Israelites celebrated and praised God for delivering them this way. You know, it's interesting when you look back at the historical data points to try to find out what was the date of this. Because it doesn't say a date in the Bible here for us. So we have to use other things to try to help us find out what was the dating of this event. It seems most likely that the date of this event was 1446 B.C. And the reason is, is various reasons that tell us why we think this would be the case, biblical and outside of the Bible. One of them is that in this particular period of time, in 1446 and the following decade, was the only time in that era that the Pharaoh did not bring his army out to battle in the springtime as he typically did. And for good reason. They were all dead. That's why we would see in history a lack of warfare from the Egyptians during the days they were rebuilding from a time of great defeat at the hands of God. What I want to do in our remaining time is just make three observations about this text and the story from Exodus chapter 14. Just three observations I hope will help us today. First observation. This event was a miracle. This event was a miracle. It was indisputably miraculous. This is important to us because not only did the Egyptians, the Israelites know and see this, but even the Israelites, even the Egyptians saw that. Both the Israelites and the Egyptians, those who'd be saved and those who would die. And remember it said in Exodus 14, 25, as they already read, the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel. Why? Well, because water does this. Stands like that all the time. No. For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. There were no atheists on that day. There were no people who could deny the existence of Yahweh God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who cared for the Israelites. They knew that it was the Lord who fought for them. Even God's enemies knew that he was the one who brought this thing about. As we look at this passage, we must be clear in our understanding of this event. The Bible shamelessly records and retells miraculous accounts. 
This book is a historical record of supernatural occurrences. It's filled with them. I wish we didn't have to pause and say that in a day like ours, but we do. In a day of materialism, atheism that reigns, and people who believe that only that which is natural and ordinary can exist, we have to see that miraculous things absolutely do take place. I admit that it's always been puzzling to me the way that some people, Christians even, fully acknowledge certain miracles. Well, of course that happened. It says it in the Bible. But other miraculous events, they go, well, not that one. They're slow to believe, might even outright reject other miracles. The same God who could speak all that you and I see into existence by the word of his mouth can certainly put words in the mouth of a donkey, can rescue a man through the belly of a fish in three days, can raise people from the dead, and can part waters in half. Yes, this is an actual supernatural event. It went down just like it said. Those who have a low view of Scripture summarily dismiss these supernatural events recorded in Exodus. And why do the critics come to these conclusions, these assumptions? Because they maintain that the event as described in this chapter is a physical impossibility. And that's an assertion with which we can heartily agree. Of course it's impossible for water to part, no matter how much wind you got blowing on it. Of course that's not physically possible. But with the Lord, all things are possible. God does supernatural things. We believe in miracles. This is no stretch for us as believers to look back at these kinds of events and go, yep, that's how it happened. Especially with how many times it's repeated and repeated. There have been people who tried to say like, well, this wasn't the Red Sea. Maybe it was through a swamp and the water just kind of was low. Others would say, well, maybe it was just kind of, you know, low tide and it was, it was a year where the water didn't come as far up into the shore and so it was kind of, it just didn't, didn't really happen there. Maybe there was typhoons out in the Indian Ocean that drew all the water away and so there's just not much, not much water there. They just walked across this area of the landscape. None of that is true. They crossed the Red Sea. The waters parted, a wall on the right and on the left, enough to kill an entire army who couldn't pass through by God's mighty hand. We believe these things. These are a miracle. The events of the Exodus were by no mistaken thought miraculous. But this was not just any miracle. This particular one was one of the most iconic, publicly witnessed miracles in the Bible. I want you to consider this for a second. Some miracles have already been recorded in Hebrews 11. They pointed back to other miraculous events that preceded this particular one. Abraham and the miraculous birth of his son Isaac by his barren wife Sarah. How many people observed that event? A family? Maybe that tribe? How about the other event where Abraham takes Isaac up onto the mountain, getting ready to sacrifice him as the Lord commanded? God stops him and provides a ram. How many people observed that miracle? Two. Even if you were to go back further, the Noah event, the Noah's Ark, how many survivors of that account? Eight. Various military victories told throughout the Bible, only observed by those present at the battle. David killing Goliath, the walls of a city falling, hailstones coming down. Those were observed by those who were present at that time. Daniel and the lion's den. One guy. And the king 
And those surrounded saw this. Jonah being swallowed by a great fish. We only know of one who survived and saw that. Even the audiences present for Jesus' miracles were small by comparison. Think about that. Jesus' most widely experienced miracle was that of the feeding of the 5,000. And how many people observed that? 5,000 men. Maybe, maybe if we were just to assume as many as 10,000 more women and children. right? So at our greatest assumptions, maybe 15,000 people observed that miracle. By the counts that the Old Testament gives us, 100 times more people observed this miracle. That's a huge number. It was all, all of the Old Testament saints at that time observed that. It's amazing to consider. No generation of people in the Old Testament observed more miracles than this one did. From the 10 plagues up to crossing of the Red Sea, the provision of God in the wilderness, no generation would observe the miracles that they observed. But today, you and I are every bit as much in need of a miracle as they were on that day. Apart from a supernatural act of God, we are hopelessly lost. Nothing short of a miracle could have saved Israel in that day. And nothing short of a miracle can save us in ours. Our need for one is every bit as great as theirs was then. I want you to imagine the lost person in your mind right now that you pray for regularly. And maybe the person that you don't, you've almost stopped praying for because you're like, man, it seems so far-fetched that that person can get saved. They're so far from God. There's no way that person, maybe this friend who seems more open, who seems closer, but no way is that one getting saved. Brother and sister, I gotta tell you, we are praying for something supernatural to take place. We're praying for a miracle. For God to convert the heart of a person, the wicked heart, to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, that's a miraculous event. It's every bit as needed as parting of the Red Sea was here. I want you to remember with me that Hebrews 11, the whole point of this chapter, is to tell us that we have a greater reason to have faith than did these Old Testament saints. Jesus once told his disciples that they would do greater works than he did. I want you to think about that. Jesus told his disciples, you would do greater works than I. John 14. What did he mean by that? That the preaching of the word of God that would soften the hearts of men and lead to salvation of lost souls is greater work than raising a man from the dead or even opening water into a wall on the right and on the left. Jesus once said in Matthew chapter 9 when he was forgiving a man of his sins, a man who couldn't walk. He was lame, and Jesus heals this man to walk, and he tells him his sins are forgiven, and the, the Pharisees in the area go, how dare, who can do that? How can, how can anybody forgive a man of his sins apart from God? Jesus said this, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? The reason he asked that was obvious, because everyone would have thought that actually healing a man's legs would have been impossible to do. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Why did Jesus do this miracle? Because the lesser miracle of standing up on lame legs healed was to show that the greater miracle, forgiveness of sins, had actually taken place. It is a greater work to heal the heart of wicked mankind to save sinners. 
Rescuing someone out of the bonds of slavery is a small thing compared to breaking a person free from slavery to sin. Sinners' hearts are harder than chains. The devil is more stubborn than was Pharaoh. Our faith is unambiguously in the supernatural. We believe in miracles today. And if you're a believer, you've experienced a miracle, a great and mighty miracle, and your hardened heart being brought to life. This is why this event is being recalled to memory. Look, if they had faith, When they saw the waters part, how much more should you have faith that you have seen what the Lord has done in your life? That you know the way of salvation, the coming of the Son of Man, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We can have a greater faith than even they did. Second observation is just that. This was an act of faith. What is being praised here is not the heroism of the Israelites, not the ingenuity of Israel's leaders, or the courage of the people. It is their faith. It's by faith the people crossed the Red Sea. God acts, and we believe. That's how it's supposed to work. You know, some people in our day wonder why God doesn't do big, externally recognized miracles like this today. Wouldn't it be so much easier if he always did big, extraordinary wonders like this? Mighty works that were undeniably supernatural. Who could be an atheist in the face of supernatural miracles, right? Who could harden their hearts in those moments? Wouldn't it finally convince the hard-hearted person to believe? The answer, no. No, I don't think we need to see that at all. Remember, it was not the miracle that produced the faith of the people. They already demonstrated their faith by coming out of Egypt with the blood on the doorpost. They'd already demonstrated it in such a way. Just because the Israelites saw this miracle, this did not produce saving faith in those who witnessed it. The Egyptian army believed, didn't they? The Lord fights for them. And yet they died. They perished in their opposition to God. Miracles do not produce saving faith. You need to remember this because there are whole movements today of people who desperately try to even artificially reproduce miraculous events. They can do it on a stage. They can do it in front of people. They can record some supernatural things. That will finally get people to have faith. People have a saving faith in God. If only they observe a miracle. That is not true. Categorically false. Do you remember Jesus' biggest audience we just said was what? Feeding of the 5,000? It's the only miracle... In all four Gospels, if it shows up in all four of them, apart from the resurrection event, all four of them, it's recorded, the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe 15,000 people observed it. How many people continued to follow Jesus after observing that miracle? Almost none. The whole point of the feeding of the 5,000 is after he finishes doing that great and mighty work, the people see it and they go, oh my goodness, who is this man? He teaches them, they don't like his teaching, and they all leave. That's the point. It's the fastest Shrinking church in the history of the Bible. Killed a mega church in a day. Even his disciples are like, well, where, I don't know where we'd go. You alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus asked them if they're going to leave. Jesus' sermon preached to the largest group in his entire lifetime would reject his teaching and would reject the miracle that he did. He even speaks directly to his miracles when he says this to the Pharisees. He tells them that they should believe the works. Listen, if you don't believe in me, at least believe in the works. He says this in John 10. 
If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe in me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Makes sense, doesn't it? Do you not see? At least what I'm doing is authenticated by the Father. Do you not see this? And what was the response? Was it, well, he's right. Obviously, he did work, so we should believe him. No, very next verse. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. In fact, did you know that they didn't just try to kill Jesus? They actually sought to kill Lazarus. You guys know that? Historically, they went after Lazarus, too, it says in the Bible. Why? Lazarus was the one that Jesus raised from the dead because they're so mad that Lazarus was walking proof that Jesus did miracles, and they didn't care. Miracles did not produce the saving faith. In fact, rather than producing saving faith in the hearts of these men, for them, Jesus' miracles became a basis for greater judgment and greater condemnation. Matthew eleven twenty one. 21, he says this. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. That's two cities in Galilee where Jesus did a majority of his ministry, a majority of his, his miracle working at that time. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. You catching that? The places where he did the majority of his miracles are the places where he had the greatest of opposition. He says it'll be better on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those cities who watched his miracles because miracles did not produce saving faith, but actually a further basis for judgment. The Red Sea event is not what made the people have saving faith. But the people's obedience to God's command through Moses, walking through the Red Sea, was a demonstration of their collective faith in what he was doing. I want you to listen to how the songwriter writes of this event in Psalm 77. He says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This, this songwriter here, that's Asaph, he's, he's writing about the event that far preceded him. And he tells about this event. The water was afraid of God. God blows the water, goes, get out of the way. Obey God. Fear him. But you notice, not only does he attribute that great and mighty work to what God did. Look what God did. He says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. What does that mean? He said, if the people were to look around them, they would not have observed physically God walking with them. In fact, even the glory cloud that was present at this time was between the people and Pharaoh. That's actually where, where that cloud was. But at this time, the Lord was with them. He was with them in it. And they were to believe and trust that the Lord was with them as they walked through those waters. They were not to be afraid like the Egyptians would get afraid because they had God on their side. What you and I need today is not big miracles. Externally observed. 
by masses of people. But we need faith in a big God. God did not promise that every subsequent generation of Israelites should expect to personally experience these same kinds of miracles. Rather, he tells the people to continuously retell this event to their children that they may believe in the power of God. Thought about that? So question, does God tell his people, hey, don't worry about remembering this miracle because there's going to be a new one in their day and then another one in the next day and then another one. All the generations get a big miracle. Don't worry. No, the exact opposite is what he says. In, in Psalm 78, the psalm following the one I just read, he says this, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his, keep his commandments. He'll go on to actually talk back about the Exodus event to make it clear that's what he's talking about there. So God tells the people, continually revisit these miracles of old. Tell your children and children's children about them. Why? Because there will be one generation who will experience it face to face. The rest will have to believe what was written. None of you in this room are going to heaven because we believe what we have seen with our eyes. None of us saw Jesus rise from the dead. None of us saw him die on a cross. All of us are believing the eyewitness testimony of those who come before us and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's not experienced by all. That's not externally observed by everyone around you. You and I must have faith. We are to believe. And this is how God operates. He wants for his people to be those who trust in him and trust that his plan is better than ours. And the Bible tells us that God works all things for good for the sake of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's distinguishable. He does not work all things for good in the same way for all people. And this event is a good example of it. And that's our third observation for this morning. Not everybody benefits from God's plan in the same way. God distinguishes here between those who are his people and those who are not his people. Look at how clearly it is stated right here in Hebrews eleven twenty nine. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Some made it through to dry land. Others didn't. What was the difference? Faith. Not just intellectual assent, the guys, the guys, the Egyptians going in, they knew that there was a God who was doing these mighty works, doing these things. They, they stated it. God is doing this. And yet they perished. There's a difference between a saving faith and those who might intellectually just assent. One time I was on the street doing street evangelism and I was talking to uh, people about the gospel and one particular gentleman walked by that I don't know if I'll ever forget. He was the most honest uh, unbeliever that I'd ever met. When I started the conversation, I said, you need to know that you're a sinner. Yep, I know. Good, you should. You need to know there really is an all-holy, righteous God who will judge all mankind for their deeds. Yep, I know. Um, and if you don't repent of your sins and turn in faith to his one and only son who died on a cross for those sins, 
was buried and resurrected. If you don't believe in that, you're going to hell. I know. So you believe there's a Jesus? Yes. You believe he's the son of God? Yep. You believe you're a sinner? Yep. You... So hold on. If you walk across the street right now and you get hit by a car, explain to me what do you think will happen. I'll go to hell and burn forever. Literally, that's what this guy said. I was like, so why not repent? And he goes, I don't want to. I like my sin. You just said it. So it's like, I'll never forget this guy. He was just so honest. I know all of that's true. I just don't want to love God. I want my sin. I was like, well, well then I can't help you. Intellectual assent. Sure, there's a God. Sure, he does these mighty works. Sure, he crushes his enemies. It's not the same as saving faith. What's the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How can we differentiate between an intellectual assent and saving faith? There are people who come to churches, maybe some of you today, who will intellectually go, all of this makes sense to me. I think all this is true. I'm guessing that all the, all the events in history that point us to the reality of these things are accurate. I think there probably was a Jesus. He probably did die for our sins. He probably did go to ascend into heaven after he resurrected. But you don't love God. The indelible proof that it is saving faith and not just an intellectual assent is that it produces love in your heart for God and to hatred of sins. That's how you can know. And God distinguishes between those who have saving faith and those who don't. This is true for us today. He differentiates between his people and his enemies. Our gospel, then, is both exclusive and inclusive. It's both of those things at the same time. Our gospel is exclusive in that not everyone is a child of God. Everyone is not a child of God. If you live in Utah, born and raised around here, you talk to your Mormon neighbors a lot, about, I'm telling you right now, this is one of those pervasive lies that comes around our culture. It's not true. The Bible does not say that all of us here are a child of God in the way that the LDS Church wants to say. No. Look at what it says in John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, Jesus... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus calls his enemies sons of the devil, sons of perdition. We must become children of God. Those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I had people ask me before on the street before when we talk about hell and the realities and the eternal state of hell, separation from God and torment for forever, are you telling me that God would send his children to hell? Nope. Not one of God's children will go to hell. Only those who are not his children. You need to be adopted into the household of God. Adopted by saving faith. That you may become a son of God. The Bible distinguishes between those who believe in and love God and those who don't. In the book of Galatians, Paul even uses the Old Testament analogy of two sons born of two different women, one a slave woman, one a free woman. And he says this, But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This distinction stands today. Not everyone is in God's good grace. Not everyone 
makes it through the Red Sea to the other side to dry land. Not everyone will have saving faith. But at the same time that the gospel is exclusive, only through Jesus can we be saved. The gospel is inclusive in that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. No matter age, no matter race, no matter gender, no matter social class, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus, you will have eternal life. The world today is constantly trying to distinguish between groups of people. Those politically on the right, on the left, or neither. Those who are conservative, liberal, or none of the above. Those who see cops as mostly good, or those who see cops as mostly bad. Pro-mask people, and anti-mask people. Those who think we should have a border wall and those who don't. Those who think capitalism is good and those who think it's bad. Those who think socialism is a great idea and those who think it's a terrible idea. And as the world continues to try to divide and conquer, this becomes not just ideologies but people groups. You become defined by them. But those distinctions are a distraction. Yes, Social issues matter, and how you think about them matters. Yes, they do. But much higher priority is whether today you are a child of God or one of his enemies. Because in reality, spiritually speaking, there are only two kinds of people. Those who are children of God and those who are not. And those are the ones that will matter for all eternity. If we were to run a line down the middle of the room and it's in our minds as an exercise, imagine everyone who's perfect and sinless and right before God by their own actions may stand on this side. And everyone who has ever sinned before God, even the tiniest way, is on this side. Which side would you be on? Everyone would be on this side. All of humanity. Man, woman, child would be on the left side. It would be over here on this side. Every one of you would be here. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are on that side. Whether it be a little thing or a big one. No one is righteous. No, not one. All men sin against God. All die because all have sinned. You and I are here. But there is one, one alone, who stands on the perfect, innocent side. And that's Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, sent to this earth to live a perfect, sinless, innocent life. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus says, I will cross the line into the suffering of death for sin so that all of those who believe in me may cross to the other side and gain all the benefits of a pure and innocent life. And that is a great exchange. I will take on your sin and death and you take on my perfection and eternal life. And Jesus does not remain there because Jesus bears the penalty for sins. He dies, he's buried in the ground, he raises to new life. In purity, returns to the site of perfection. Death cannot hold him. That you and I may live forever in heaven with him. If you're acknowledging this morning that you're on that side, you know you're a sinner, you know you've sinned against God, then repent of your sins. 
Turn from that life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Cross that line, not on your own merit, not because you've done so many good things, but because Jesus has done all the good necessary. And by faith alone, may you cross that line and have eternal life. If you haven't done that today, you need to cry out to the Lord today. Don't hesitate, don't delay. Talk to a Christian here, talk to me or any other believer in this room. Just pause them before you leave today and say, I need to get some things straight. Confess your sins, repent of them, cry out to God for salvation and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And brothers and sisters, if you and I are over on this side, this isn't just a party. We, we, we keep looking the other way and just enjoy the fact that we're there. We spend the rest of our days like those in the, the remaining life raft trying to help people get in, rescue them out of the darkness. We were the ones just like you. We're no more deserving of salvation than you are. But believe. And this is why we preach the gospel indiscriminately. Because all of us, impartially, were enemies of God apart from Jesus. But now in him we have been reconciled. We have been justified by his great works. Brothers and sisters, we are in need of a miracle today. In the hearts and minds of all of those who don't yet know him. Let's pray that that miracle would continue to go out, that we would cry out to God to perform it day after day. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we go before you in prayer, we acknowledge that the, the event of the Red Sea happened, just like you said, and we need an event just as big and real to take place in the hearts of those that we know and love who don't yet know you. Lord, there may be some here today who don't know and love you and, and need to have their hearts changed. They're asking for an impossibility, something that is not humanly possible. It's not physically possible. It's not materially possible for their heart of stone to be replaced with a heart of flesh. And I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would do that mighty work and that you would grow the number of worshipers at this church, in this county, around the world for your great glory and for our great joy. Help us to commit our days to giving you the worship that you are due to by faith doing what these Israelites did, walking even when it seems scary, even when it seems crazy, even when the world is, is bearing down on us, that we would go the direction that you've commanded. And that, Lord, that we would proclaim it for the generations to see. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.